0: Are you ready to lose weight the easy way? Get Nutrisystem, the proven plan that's worked for millions, and it will work for you, too. You get your breakfasts, lunches, dinners, and snacks delivered right to your door. Delicious foods that are ready in minutes, now featuring hearty inspirations meals that control hunger for up to five hours, high in protein, and bigger than ever. Exactly what you need to feel full, satisfied, and energized as the weight comes off. The secret is the break Breakthrough science of smart adapt, personalized to your metabolism and created to help you break through plateaus. Get your plan for as little as ten dollars a day. Order Nutrisystem today and start losing weight right away. Millions of people have lost weight on Nutrisystem. You can too. Go to slash new right now and get a special offer. Just go to slash new to get started.
1: Expect to lose an average one to two pounds a week. Offer restriction supply. See website for details.
2: Welcome to Let It Roll, the story of how and why rock and roll happened with Ed Ward and Nate Wilcox. It's time to let it roll. I'm Nate Wilcox, and today we're going to talk to biographer Paul Trinka about his book, Brian Jones, The Making of the Rolling Stones. I've been obsessed with Brian's tragic story for 30 years, and Trinka's book is the definitive one on the subject. As always, you can access our YouTube playlists and learn more about the episodes on our website, LetItRollPodcast.com. This week, Paul and I talk about the brutal rivalries at the heart of the Rolling Stones, who originally brought the mojo to the band, Brian and Keith Richards' legendary guitar weaving, and much more. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome to the Let It Roll podcast. We've got something a little bit different today. Edward is busy beavering away on volume two of his history of rock and roll. So I've invited one of my favorite rock writers, Paul Trinka, who's been generous enough to sit down and talk with us. He's the author of Brian Jones, The Making of the Rolling Stones, David Bowie, Starman, Iggy, Open Up and Bleed, and Portrait of the Blues, as well as a longtime editor of Mojo Magazine. So I'm hoping to talk about all of that with Paul. Paul, welcome. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks, Nate. Cool. And so first up, I want to talk about the Brian Jones book. That's the most recent of your books. And Brian Jones, for whatever reason, this has always been a morbid obsession of mine. As, as long as I've been aware of the Stones, what motivated you to write a book about Brian Jones?
1: I've always been fascinated by the early history of the Stones and actually didn't think there was a definitive account of their origins, really. And Brian fascinated me because I've done enough stories on the Stones spoken to them enough over the years to realize he was um, an inspirational visionary figure whilst also being a very flawed human being. And I'd looked at the other books and in my arrogant, you know, mojo editor kind of way, I, you know, none of them satisfied me for a start. None of them really spoke about the music. You know, here's the guy who first played slide guitar was the first electric slide guitarist in, the UK and Europe, the first white one, that is, and probably, you know, beat any American rivals to the throne. So he was a fascinating figure, and I thought it hadn't been done. So it was a kind of an easy choice for me, really.
2: And how much of it was a response to, frankly, Keith Richards' belittling of Jones and his legacy in his autobiography, Life? Life was in
1: many ways an immediate spur because Keith spent so much time putting down Brian and saying he wasn't important, that it had the opposite effect for me of, of that intended. To me, it felt that Brian was really important and that Keith was in denial, and not necessarily denial because of ego, although that was a part of it. I think they went through a lot of pain together as kids, really. You know, they they abused each other like... Um, it's like a pack of wild dogs in many ways. So, yeah, life to me was felt like somebody damaged writing about somebody else who was very damaged and and in denial and and I thought it was not a very just book um you know how how many of us are really just and fair about other people well we try to be don't we and and you know there's a certain credibility and and whilst I was happy that Keith's book did well you know it got people talking about music I I thought was a really really flawed book and and shallow, you know. There were some terrific bits in it, but I felt that his uh, the kind of narrative, the Keith that came out, you know, was a creation. It wasn't really that honest. I think Keith's writing through a kind of veil of um, poor memory, um, you know. The, I guess the drugs over the years that you know the hangers on, and that's not to put the guy down because I've got a lot of affection for him. But yeah, it, it wasn't just all fair and I didn't feel it did the history right. He didn't even remember the name of the drummer on their first gig, you know so I thought it was time for me to put another perspective.
2: And that's much appreciated, especially by those of us who for whatever reason are Brian Jones obsessions. I mean I love the stones, but there's something special about Brian that you know even though he basically was either checked out or dead for their absolute pinnacle, the beggar's banquet to exile Main Street. Period. I mean, he contributed to beggars, but after that uh, faded out and then and was dead for the big part. But what is it about Brian that you think was something lost in the Stones later work without Brian And, and how much of their of their later legacy was set by him? Well, I guess I say
1: in the book that Brian kind of gave them their mojo and they were operating on a residual mojo after he died. You know, so in some ways in some real ways, they, they were still doing what he taught them. And and they had a certain amount, they had freedom after, you know, he, he'd been, um, to some extent, a dead weight in the studio, a dead weight that they'd created. But all the tools they were using were ones he'd, you know, he'd shown them. And um, there was that edge to everything they did with him and then the immediate albums afterwards. But what you can really tell is that they were musically conservative and, and Brian was musically adventurous. And while he was there, they pushed. And, you know, they kept on pushing up to Exile on Main Street because Brian had helped put them at the cutting edge. And thereafter, you know, Keith had his open G tuning and he played riffs in open G tuning for another, you know, 40 years afterwards. And the, they've probably made less progress in the subsequent 40 years than they did in, you know, like seven years or so with Brian. So, you know, I love those later albums too, but they, they bear the stamp of Brian. But they once they lost that sense of adventure and, and, and maybe chaos he gave them, it was really diminishing returns thereafter. That, and, um, yeah, so, you know, for me, the magic went. And I love Sticky Fingers, which is, you know, a, a, an album that was made after Brian. But if Brian hadn't existed, that
2: album wouldn't have been made. Yeah, and how much do you view them? I mean, one of the themes in your work is this tension between singer songwriters like David Bowie and Iggy Pop or Muddy Waters and Helen Wolf versus sidemen like Brian Jones or Ron Ashton, James Williamson, Hubert Sumlin. How much of that sort of tension? I mean, what was the twist for you? And and your previous books had been from the perspective of the singer-songwriter. What was the flip going and writing from the perspective of the sideman, the accompaniment? That's a
1: really good question, actually. And it is an area that interests me. And few people have commented on that before. But um, for me, the story of Iggy Pop was really how his fellow bandmates made Iggy Pop. That is not to denigrate you know, his, his genius because he took these elements from these other people and he, and he put them he, he kind of focused them and, uh, and, and marketed them and sold them and embodied them but he would have never been Jim Osterberg would have never become Iggy Pop without meeting the Stooges the Dum Dum Boys and I guess in exactly the same way Brian was the, was the true outcast and Mick Jagger and Keith they took a lot of brian's elements and they incorporated that into their own persona in exactly the same way that that iggy had taken on dave alexander and ron ashton and subsumed those into his own persona. Remember, these are kind of middle class boys. They're not really on the edge. You know, Jimmy Osterberg was the the school pupil at Tappan Junior High, voted most likely to succeed. You know, people thought he might become president of the USA. So he got, he took that edge from Ron Ashton. And Mick Jagger, who, let's remember, didn't give up his place at the LSE, at the London School of Economics, till the Stones actually had a record in the charts. He took that edge mainly from brian jones um to some extent you know the keith richards that we know today he took elements from brian jones the voice that keith has now is is kind of brian jones's voice and the the clothing that he wore from 1967 1968 that you know they were brian jones's voice but i guess sometimes when we take when we steal something we steal an element of somebody else we we can commercialise it a bit more, strip it down, and, and lose the bit that make him a bit of a a bit of a mess. Because poor Ron Ashton, you know, a man who I think you know was a genius in his own way. Iggy left him, and, and Ron more or less stayed on the sofa for the next thirty or forty years. And, and Brian didn't have that ambition. You know, he didn't have the right kind of ambition that that Mick Jagger, in particular,ly had. But those guys took stuff from Brian. And you know what? That theft is not a criminal act. That's what happens in creativity. It's only somewhat critical when you don't give credit (laughs) to the people whose life and work you've appropriated.
2: Yeah. And that's one thing that's fascinating about the Stones. I mean, in a way, it's very true to the brand that Brian established for them, for them not to be sentimental about him, to not be kind to his memory. I mean, they're the opposite of the Beatles. The Beatles were always about we love everybody and you know they helped George reach this culmination as a singer-songwriter and even promoted Ringo as a star in his own right. Whereas the Stones was very much more a vicious competition internally. And you know it's pretty clear from reading your book and other accounts of Brian's life that he set that tone. I mean, he was the original cruel person. Yeah. That's it. Again, a very good point. I guess they've, they've
1: um, kept true to his values, which were of, um, of competition, you know, one upmanship rivalry and a kind of insecurity as well. You know, he, and yeah, the the contrast between the culture, the culture of the stones and the Beatles is a shocking one. And I think it's one that doesn't really come out generally when, People talk about them and it's part of their their magic, really, the, the nastiness and the cruelty, you know, that the, they would, uh, you know, the Let's Spend the Night Together video shows Brian a mess, you know, when he's facing drugs charges. That's pretty extreme. But I guess that's at the heart of their best music. You know, it, it's kind of has a it's not really loving music is it It, it's kind of it's disturbing it's there's some kind of there's definitely some sand in the in the oyster and and he set that up so I guess you're right it it, it's kind of true to the the image and you know for me somebody's I guess been around a lot of the people who were around the Beatles and Stones for a long time now I mean it's weird in retrospect to, to think that I've met a lot of Beatles people over the years and and then a lot of Stones people have been around the Stones group people did say um tony brown one in particular said he didn't really enjoy spending time with the stones he said the beatles had nice people around them and the stones had nasty people
2: yeah and that's very much something that brian and keith in particular had this fascination you know with hard men and and andrew lo goldham as well you know with with reg the bodyguard and and Figures like that, their relationship with Kenneth Anger, the occultist uh, and director, and Brian was very much, you know, the leader on that path. And what do you think of as is Brian's biggest legacy beyond the Stones? I mean, is it that he's the founder of the Twenty Seven Club and the the architect type of the doomed rock star? No,
1: I think the Twenty Seven Club is. You know, it's, it's a nice little marketing tool. But to me, you know, Brian is, is, is the first one who put the, that edge and those kind of blue notes into British pop music. You know, you think about the Beatles before. It's all very major key. It's all very Chuck Berry. And then that, that, that modal edge, that kind of bluesy edge, that slide guitar, that kind of distortion, that comes from Brian. You know, Brian in... 1961, 1962 got that sound down. You know, he listened to Elmore James, he stuck a pickup on his acoustic and and shoved it through a Vox AC15, and he was the first one really to get that distortion. And if you listen to the first demos they did with him. And especially if you want to, if you listen to their version of I Want to Be a Man, which is the one where he had kind of free reign in the studio, it was his arrangement. Andrew Lou Goldham had crashed after a bit of a manic depressive episode on that edge. You know, once that was there, once that was there in the, once it had been invented, what it was, once he was in the ether, the universe, there was no putting it back. And he was the first one, you know, plenty of other people had, uh, you know, made their other Um, advances in music but i think there's an absolutely convincing case that brian was the first to unleash that kind of blues aggression and that blue uh, and nastiness and that sound and that really defined nearly all of you know british music beyond that it it really made a difference maybe somebody else could have done it later on if he hadn't but he was the first guy to do it
2: Yeah. And to me, you can really hear that in the work of the Kinks and Ray Davies and the Who and Pete Townsend that they were clearly listening to I Want to Be Your Man because they went right after that guitar tone.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's it's a really pumped up sound. It's kind of eyeball popping. It's distorted. It's compressed. And it's kind of a bit relentless, it's very repetitive, you know. So I hear a lot of American garage rock in there as well. I hear exactly the that really hemp compressed sound that Shel Talmy went for with the the who and the the, the kinks. Tonally, that was the first one. And and I don't think it's insignificant that of all the American punk bands, including Ron Ashton, you know, it was it was Brian Jones who was the icon because he had that edge. He had that kind of beauty and then he had that nastiness to him as well. And and I do say in the book, and maybe it's kind of over philosophical, but nonetheless, you know, there's this myth about the God Pan and he introduced kind of distortion and a kind of atonal element into music. And that's what gave it its kind of sexiness and its appeal. And Brian saw himself as a Pan figure. And uh, there are certain people... And we're going a little bit esoteric here. He saw him as a manifestation of the the god Pan. So when I for the, the British title of the book is Sympathy for the Devil, and it's not the devil, it's not Satan, it's a little devil, it's Pam. You know, he's a bit he's he's not a good boy, but he's unleashed this amazing cornucopia of music. And that's what Brian symbolizes to me on a kind of visual front and then definitely on a sonic front as well.
2: I think that's an excellent summation. And one thing that I think it's a common theme between Brian Jones and David Bowie is this they functioned as sort of a retroactive rock critic in that before Brian Jones comes along. You know, if you look into the Beatles early history, especially Mark Lewison's work at documenting this stuff so well, or if you look into what Elvis Presley's influences were Little Richards, it's more, you know, Lewis Jordan and Jump Blues and Winoni Harris and Roy Brown and guys like that. Whereas Brian and the Stones create this shift and sort of retroactively erase that history and put in their Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and Robert Johnson and the blues tradition. And that ever since then, that's been the accepted history of rock and roll.
1: I think that's a really good point. Again, when you listen to the Beatles stuff, um, I was in a shop the other day and they were playing I'll Get You by the Beatles. It's a great song. You know, it's very sort of up-tempered, but it's very, very major. And then, you know, it doesn't sound unlike Freddie and the Dreamers, a band that I don't have a lot of time for. It's like a good version of Freddie and the Dreamers, but it's very, you can, it's very um, Boat, it's very Buddy Holly. It's very British musical. And there's no real darkness or edge to it at all. They had that sometime, but it's not, it's not there. And the Stones kind of shifted. You know, there's a kind of tipping point where the, where they they kind of shifted the axis to something darker and dirtier, and the Brits for some reason were really good at it. You know that Brian was the first, a lot of other people, let's say Jimmy Page and others, really had an ear for it. Uh, Clapton, likewise, with the first Blues Breakers album, went for that edge, um, which generally wasn't around in pop music. So that you know the kind of sonic character of everything really changed, and for them to find that. To tap into this stuff that was very esoteric. You know, it was it was collector's music. It was kind of weirdo collectors, a bit like video collectors who want something a bit darker and a bit more violent. And and I and Keith was certainly into that stuff, although Keith was the Chuck Berry dude. But it was Brian who latched on to Robert Johnson especially, about whom there's something darker in the sound. And uniquely in the stones, it was Brian who actually thought this music would be commercial. The other stones just thought, hey, it'll be it's kind of cool student music. Yeah. We'll do this for a couple of years. It's like hip art student music. And it was Brian who desperately wanted to be a star. He kind of thought, this is my ticket. You know, I'm going to be a star. And there was that kind of madness and desperation about it. And that's what, that's what drove the stones. If he hadn't been the one pushing with this angst, um, they wouldn't have been the band. They were. He was yeah. Kind they of like. Go ahead. He was kind of, He was kind of like the John Lennon and the George Harrison of the Stones. You know, the roles overlap, but Paul Dinoier from Mojo, I remember a really good review of maybe the Lewis book where he talked about Lennon being the first guy to cotton on to ants. So when we listen to people like Kurt Cobain, that kind of whole aura of being unhappy, you know, uh, of being in pain, that, you know, John did unleash it, but Brian was a crucial part of that in the stones as well. He just communicated it in a different way because he wasn't a singer.
2: And, and one thing about one of, I think Brian's legacies that maybe you underplay in the book a little bit, but to me, uh, you know, Robert Palmer talks about this a lot in his biography of the stones. That there's this big split behind the scenes in 1968, where Brian is obsessed with Moroccan music and Mick and Keith really want to get back to the blues. And, Brian loses that fight. I mean, he's psychically crippled at that point, and his second drugs arrest in May of 68 finishes him. But to me, Jimmy Page, who had worked with Brian on the soundtrack for the um, Anita Pallenberg movie, Brian did the soundtrack too, as well as on uh, Nico's first solo record, Jimmy Page is the one who picks up that thread. And to me, records like Cashmere uh, and, and so much of the stuff Led Zeppelin did on Physical Graffiti that... To me, Brian is is part of the torch passing of that.
1: I think that's very plausible argument. Actually, um, it is perhaps one I should have stressed. Maybe because I I wasn't instinctively a Led Zepp fan and I had so many kind of uh, um, points to make in the book. I would have loved to have got Jimmy Page. He's made very, you know, and really spoken to him about what went on because I know he thinks of Brian as a as a visionary. And I definitely see that as a, as a torch that passed from one to the other. And you, uh, and you're right, you know, that the, they did take on that Moroccan sound. The one time I saw Page and Plant at Glastonbury in about 1997, they were great when they had um, a kind of a string orchestra behind them playing all these very modal Moroccan, you know, string lines. It was fantastic. And, you know, Brian did, was responsible for that but of course there was a bigger thing as well where you know he, he brought the notion of of i don't world music is a kind of patronizing term because it 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 packages all these disparate cultures up in one little bag but in but if we're going to use that term you know brian was the first one to realize you know this is kind of the same this is rock and roll you know we've we've incorporated blues into all of that we can take this stuff in and i think again he was really visionary and, incorporating that. So, and it goes beyond, you know, people like Peter Gabriel or, or whoever, you know, there's been so many bits of, 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 of disparate African and even folk music brought and obscure folk music's brought into, to all of today's, you know, kind of pop culture. And he was the first guy to kind of commit to it.
2: Yeah. And, and one thing I think that Brian's focus, one of the reasons he's sort of like a dark star that that's hidden is that one of his gifts was this fascination with sound. Like he says in some of his in- interviews while he was alive, you know, I'm into the sound of things, whether it's church bells or the tone of a blues guitar. And he, he really was the first English musician to capture that sonic tone of the early blues records. And then his fascination with Moroccan music, I mean, it's the it's that raunchy sound of those Arabic drones and horns. And he brings that into the Satanic Majesties era of the Stones music very well. But, you know, his sort of second great awakening or creative period in the Stones is when he becomes this multi-instrumentalist. You know, he's on the marimbas or or he's uh, uh, playing the dulcimer, uh, early innovator on the Mellotron. I mean, how much of that, fascination with sound i mean why is that legacy not appreciated more i guess is, is my question it's a really good point because i think if you think about the year
1: 1967 and how the brits got to it you know brian was really one of the key movers because the whole possibilities of sound had opened up. You know, you could use anything. And Brian was the one in many ways who, who used the kind of recording studio as a musical instrument in itself. Just realizing when you come to a session, you add these shades and these tones. It takes the music in a in a different place. And it does sadden me that he's often just seen as the the kind of weird guy or the dead guy in the stones. But you know the Beatles were exploring these extreme sonic possibilities. But Brian was plausibly taking it further. And although George played the sitar before Brian did, you know george George's sitar was like India, you know it, it was recognizably Indian, whereas with Brian, the sitar was just a part of the whole, you know. And he kind of he did theoretically come up with how, sitar would fit in with you know the stones is pentatonic scales so even whilst he was stoned a lot of the time there was a lot of real kind of sonic wisdom and understanding of the of the bigger picture and of course exactly the same things happens with the with the marimbas as well so all the edge and the invention is i think really under appreciated and it's important to have to think about people like Eddie Kramer, the guy who was responsible for so much of Jimi Hendrix's great recordings. And he, you know, he thought that Brian was the visionary within the Stones. When he was there in the studio, even when Brian was in the mess, it's kind of Brian who added the magic. And uh, yeah, he doesn't get credit for that. But then again, you know, his fellow Stones have been dissing him for 40 years and that
2: uh, does have an effect. And speaking of credit, like one of the things that I think Brian's Brian Jones' partisans obsess over is, other than the Nankerfeld group credit for songwriting, which he shared in, he gets no credit for songs like "The Last Time," where he wrote the distinctive riff, or uh, "Paint It Black," where he probably wrote the melody line that Mick Jagger. I mean, his sitar and Mick Jagger's vocal melody are the same tune, Mm. and you know, uh, Lady Jane, others like that. Well, I mean, how much, or under my thumb, you know, where Bill Wyman says, you know, before Brian's part, it wasn't really a song now, was it? How much of that do you think, I mean, do you think he deserved songwriting credit on some of those tunes? Two points really. Yes, he did deserve credit. Secondly,
1: he needed to ask for it and he didn't, you know, so if we were to talk about his flaws, a bad, a bad negotiator doesn't ask for, for something and then complains they don't get it. And that's what Brian did. Whereas good negotiator, I'm thinking when I dealt with Yoko Ono on, on Mojo and we were doing a Lenin issue in conjunction with, with her. And she came back to me, played really hard, said, I want this. I want this. I want to see this article about so and so. And we and then I'm going to help you. And we uh, and then we came out and said, no, you, you can have this. You can have this. You can't see that article. Uh, you can actually write a thing about your response to this article, which was, was um, about the Goldman book. And, uh, and that's all we can do. And she said, fine. And at the end, she sent us all little notes to say thank you. She asked for what she wanted. She got most of it. And she was and she showed gratitude, whereas Brian didn't ask for what he wanted and felt bad about it. And we can't just blame his fellow stones that you know, he has to take, you know, he he just needed to be more assertive but of course he wasn't that kind of guy he was flawed and it is his flaws that defined him for better or worse
2: yeah i mean if you compare brian to say dave clark who got all the money from the dave clark five and and co-songwriting credit when you know mike smith probably wrote the majority you know of the melodies and chords of those songs But, you know, Brian never had financial backing and he didn't have the sense. You know, early on, he argues and gets a five pound a week pay over what the rest of the stones and in his mind, it's for being the spokesman. Um, But if he had just asked for credit as a ranger on their records, that would have been a very lucrative thing like it was for uh, Alan Price to the animals. And it would have been deserved. It would
1: have been. But remember, it it was kind of three against one because we have Andrew Oldham, who was who himself was trying to get control of, of Mick and Keith, and he did so by disparaging Brian a lot of the time. And, of course, he found Brian unreliable. I mean, actually, the other guys weren't particularly reliable. Certainly, Andrew Oldham wasn't reliable. But, there were, you know, obviously, there is a pattern there. It's a pattern that happens in a lot of rock music, where it's kind of if you've paid for the session, you own the song, and there's a hierarchy there. And it is unfair. And it happens, you know, it's hard to know how to react to it because it, you know, it happens all the time. But if you just let it go on, then maybe, you know, you're conniving, you're you're responsible. It's like seeing a kind of abuse going on and not doing anything. And, yeah, it was a rip off and it's shameful. And, you know, I think it's on. A couple of Nuncafelge songs that were band songs. You know, my understanding is that um, some of them have been recredited as Jagger Richard songs. And, you know, why is that happening without any oversight? Of course, there's nobody really looking after, you know, Brian Jones' estate um, aggressively. And that's a shame, because if we might, you know, we talk about people like Harren Wolfe or Hubert Sumlin. They were ripped off big time. You know, <clears throat> there might have been Jimmy Page could have inadvertently borrowed a couple of their riffs. But then they had hotshot lawyers who went in, got them their money, took a slice of it and got them the money. And that's probably what Brian needed. He needed somebody zealous to deal with the likes of Andrew Oldham and Alan Klein. But I guess, it, you know, this is the rock music in the early days. Plenty of people got ripped off. You know, the Animals, the Kinks, a lot of their money disappeared into the, the Bermuda or some. <laughs> or the Cayman Islands or elsewhere. It, it isn't unusual, but there is, um, an inho- you know, Brian's treatment is um, unjust and it continues.
2: Yeah, uh, but it, but you also make it very clear throughout the book that Brian brings most of this on himself. I mean, his his the lack of an heir to his estate to manage it, I mean, in one part it's because of his terrible relationship with his parents, which they obviously were partly responsible for as well. And then also his treatment of his children, which none of his children were acknowledged. You know, he treated them all as bastards that he, you know, briefly would be involved in their lives, but, you know, then cut himself off pretty cruelly from all of them. So, you know, the karma there is pretty clear. How do you deal as a writer with telling the story of somebody who's, you know, I mean, Keith sums him up as he wasn't a good guy, and he wasn't in a lot of ways. He was, you know, Keith. At another point, says he was such a beautiful cat in some ways, but such an asshole in others. How do you tell the story of somebody like that? It's a tough one,
1: really. Except we're all human beings with our baggage, and we're all damaged. And you know, a lot of the the cruel things we do are because you know we're damaged in our own sense, and. I didn't want to, you know, retrospectively absolve Brian of um, his sins. And I really, you know, I, I really made sure I detailed his betrayal of a lot of people. And with um, Linda Leach's, uh, or Linda Lawrence's um, kid, Julian, you know, they did turn up to see Brian when he was there with Marianne, faithful. And they were, and, and they were just... You know, they were mocking him. It's completely awful. And you know, I'm a dad. I love having kids. It's a, it's a joy, and it's something that stretches you as a human being. And he was incapable of doing that because he was so innately selfish. But then, many artists throughout history are, and I don't think we should absolve them of what they've done. But nonetheless, you know, the the psychology is interesting how they got to that place and. When you are turning over conventional norms, you're often a very flawed person. You know, I think in both the Iggy and the Bowie books for much of the time, they weren't very kind people. Um, Bowie, I think, ended up being kind once he was kind of successful and a lot of his demons were exorcised. But unfortunately, a lot of the people who make art, you know, can be selfish and they and they're needy and they think about themselves all the time and um, and it's always a phenomenon that's that's unsettling but but fascinating because it you know it's often the flawed personalities who make the great art and I guess I see my role as saying this is what happened and for people to make their own judgment about the balance of kind of um, of blame that we assign to them and then credit for the for the music they've made that's transformative and can transform people's lives for the good.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's one thing that comes through reading the different books that, uh, you know, Brian is this sort of completely unredeemed. I mean, he never had a chance to mature as a person. He died so young and, and never, he was the most generous musically of the stones and supported other acts, but he ends up very much isolated and alone and, and unloved. Whereas Bowie, uh, in particular, is able, I mean, the, his generosity to Iggy Pop, you know, it's very clear in the Iggy book that Bowie s- pulled Iggy off the garbage heap twice, and maybe even three times if you consider, you know, all the royalties that he made sure Iggy got. And it's really remarkable how generous Bowie was with Iggy. And then by the end of their lives, Iggy had spurned Bowie. Mm. Yeah, very true. Um
1: I was chatting to somebody about um he was thinking about a movie on the Twenty Seven Club and he was saying that in certain um cultures, might be Buddhist ones, you don't really achieve wisdom until you're twenty seven. You know, he, he he theorized that it was a very kind of loaded year psychically. Once you're twenty seven once you've got to that point, then you start to grow as a human being and assume more responsibilities. And, you know, there are other people who theorise that the way the brain works, it works in a different way, you know, when you're 27. I mean, it's hard to say with Brian, because he consumed so many drugs in the interim, that you know, certainly um, the function of his brain was most certainly affected. But Everybody can redeem themselves, and as you say, Brian didn't get a chance.
2: And so one last thing about Brian I want to bring up is his decline as a guitarist. Now, he, he blossoms as this multi-instrumentalist, but there's a clear decline from his playing from, say, 63, 64, when he's right up neck and neck with Keith. And you document you know, the way from the live tapes of 66, 67, that Brian's playing is competent, longer than perhaps a lot of people thought. Like I personally had thought that after he broke his hand, allegedly attempting to punch Anita Pallenberg, that his playing never really recovered. But you show, and I've listened to tapes myself and it's clear in 67, he could still play guitar, but by 68, there's this marked decline. And by the time you hear his version of honky tonk woman, I mean, he's not even a competent rhythm guitarist at that point. What do you think happened?
1: I think he was addicted to the new, you know, so it he, he was more about discovering an instrument than maintaining it. He didn't have the same kind of work ethic that Keith had either, because I think it's on the um, Peter Whitehead movie in Ireland. You see Keith is playing guitar all the time. So he's, he's kind of overtaking Brian. And I think Brian wanted to be top dog. You know, he was an egotist, just like they were. If he wasn't going to be the best guitarist and he'd do something else, there's definitely that element Two, and um, you know, I, and I think he didn't, you know, he, he didn't have the focus that that um, Keith had, but he was addicted to the new and found that other stuff more exciting. You know, in retrospect, if I had a time machine, I'd go back and say, keep on doing this. But all that said, listen to No Expectations, listen to that acoustic slide guitar on there, and tell me if it isn't absolutely perfect.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a beautiful sort of last testament. And I think, you know, his foot fingerprints are all over the Beggar's Banquet album. I and mean, he makes a big impact on Street Fighting Man with his sitar. And I think he's I think his playing is audible and 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 a big part of Jumpin' Jack Flash as well. The way that the bridge rather than, you know, a lot most guitars guitarists would do like the Dave Davies approach of let's take this thing over the top. Let's have the big sonic orgasm, whereas brian and keith and jumping jack flash and street fight man in the bridge they they haze into the ether and there's this sort of going out of focus that's really powerful and and the opposite of what you think and it's not something the stones ever did again do you think that that's fair i think
1: it's definitely worth advancing as a theory by that point it's hard to know how much of it is keith he's absorbed a lot of Brian's mentality and how much is Brian. But again, you listen to the albums later and and that's like chaotic edge. It's taken a different tone as well. And I think there's that kind of exoticism of Beggar's Banquet that makes it a kind of a a favourite of mine. You know, that sort of plaintive quality um, of sticky fingers, you know, isn't so much Brian. Although who knows, you know. It was Brian who's into that country stuff early on. As far as I recall, he liked Johnny Cash. And I think as well, they used to mock him for liking that country music. And then, of course, later on they're they're tapping into it. But it's not a question of necessarily blame because as we said he was a difficult character, he but what I do blame is, you know, they 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 treated each other really badly when, you know, when they were twenty three, twenty four. Now the guys are in their 70s. They should just give credit where it's due and um, and allow some healing.
2: Yeah. One thing I think uh, in their defense, that's a big factor uh, is the the death of Ian Stewart. I feel like in the Stanley Booth book, when Booth talks to Keith and Stu, Stu's apparently present like virtually every long extended quote from Keith about the history of the band Stu's right there. And also in the Rolling Stone, 1971 interview with Keith, I don't think Keith could have said stuff about Brian that was patently untrue. If Stu were alive, I think that could well be why they've got more vociferous
1: and dismissive about Brian, um, since Stu died. Although, you know, Stu really disliked Brian and um... Uh, he probably
2: hated him the most.
1: (laughs) Yeah quite kind of rightly because Stu was kind of a straight guy who turned up, you know, so somebody who's kind of thinks that they're a bit more important than don't have to t- turn up, which Brian undoubtedly did some of the time that, you know, they're a real, they're a real pain, but you know, if it was Stu's band, it they wouldn't have been, uh, they wouldn't have been a hit.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, to me, it's, it's obviously Stu was in some ways a big part of the heart of the Stones, and uh, and and definitely a factor in their music but it's it's I, I don't know it just seems ridiculous to me for Keith to claim that it was Stu's band when it was it was Brian's band and he said as much in the early 70s but you know yeah the the retroactive history is is uh it's very hard to take and and it, to me it makes me sad for Keith because the tightness of the musical bond between Brian and Keith. I mean, you know, everybody says who was there that that was the original engine of the Stones, was that twin guitar uh, aspect of Brian and Keith's playing. And to have that, even if they weren't necessarily personally close for more than a very, you know, much beyond 63 with another time in 66 when they got close again, But that musical relationship, I mean, to me, it's like having lost Brian and having lost Brian as a guitar partner even long before Brian was out of the band, that's got to have scarred Keith deeply.
1: I think it has scarred him kind of psychically. So I think to some extent he's in denial. And then the other part of it is, as human beings, we kind of often resent people who have given us a break because they've got something over on us. I think it's the is a Confucian proverb about, you know, if you save somebody's life, then you're responsible for them. So you've got to be careful about doing it, you know, and Brian gave them their first job. So, you know, that wherever he's looking down on them from, or looking up on them from, you know, wherever he resides now, he probably is thinking, Hey, you know, you were it all to me. And they, you know, and they, he probably would be saying it to them. And, uh, Uh, And they feel that, and it's not an easy kind of feeling to encompass into your, incorporate into your self-image. So, yeah, I think it's a combination of a lot of emotions. You know, I think they loved Brian, I think, in in their own way, at times as well, as well as hated him. And I guess it makes it interesting that they're so obviously damaged. And that's why it, it frustrates me that really people don't, drill into that even more i mean i'm off the list i don't really get to interview the stones any longer after being keith's mate for a long time i'd really like to sit down and ask him about that stuff but i think as keith's quite sensitive you know he's really put on this kind of carapace and does say very very shockingly callous things i mean i in um the victor bokris keith richard's book he lifts a lot of my you no know, he uses a lot of my um Keith Richards interview with only minimal credit and um and and at one point Keith said oh you know I started doing this after Brian croaks and Bokris censored it he said after Brian died rather than croaked and you know to me that seemed really bizarre because when you're sitting there with somebody and you're talking about somebody who who you cared about it's kind of a brother and then you talk about him croaking and he's just there as a kind of appendage to you or as a kind of support in that to your own legend that's pretty hard to accommodate when you're there and you're you you care about people in the way i did that's what it was like with keith it's strange and so i i want to know what's going on psychically with the guy but i guess we are all damaged as humans you know we carry our baggage and he's just got more baggage than most of us
2: yeah and and to to wrap this up I want to talk we haven't talked much about Brian's relationship with Mick, which was much more fraught than Keith And one thing I noticed in the book like in the David Bowie biography, you confront the rumors uh, you know the allegations by Angie Bowie David's ex-wife that he and Mick Jagger you know that she caught Mick and 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 David Bowie in bed together and you you debunk that out of hand but you don't address to my recollection, the Anita Pallenberg's accusation that, you know, Brian broke the bubble. I mean, it's very, it's well documented that Mick had a homosexual fascination with Keith. Marianne faithful talks about that a lot. And, you know, there's stories from the Beatles about seeing Mick and Keith in bed together and wondering if something was going on. But Anita Pallenberg told Marianne faithful that Brian burst the bubble by consummating that relationship with Mick. Why didn't you get into that in your book? Um, a good question. I, I
1: ultimately didn't think it was that credible because a lot of Anita Pallenberg's stories, as channeled through Marianne, um, and are not reliable at all. Um, I would have liked to have more, you know, I, I wish I'd found a few more gay lovers of Brian so I could get more on that story. I've only spoken to Keith about it and i i think they experimented but i i i somehow couldn't buy into the idea that Mick and Brian did it because i think they were such egotists you know one you know so open to mockery from the other so kind of insecure both of them i i can't imagine either of them being that open with the other. And I think when Anita talks about it, she, you know, she wasn't there. And, um, you know, I think there was always this erotic fascination and Brian was open to doing stuff with other guys, but I think doing it with Mick would have just put him into vulnerable a position. And I regret saying that because, you know, it's nice to have more, a more complex web of sexual relationships there, but I don't, buy into it i don't quite believe that mick shagged keith because they you because they use sex as a as a a form of violence of reinforcing your position you know like a a bunch of elephant seals might be on a sandy beach somewhere you know sex is a weapon and and i can't see them (laughs) unleashing the weapons on each other it's too dangerous
2: well, yeah. And then your book, you, you for you, the the big moment that broke or that where Mick Jagger established permanent dominance over Brian Jones, which he hadn't had up to that point, was in 63 when he had cl- when he claimed, when he bragged behind her back that he had seduced Brian's baby mama, Pat Andrews. Mm. And Brian falls for that. And his response is to seduce Keith's girlfriend, who was a virgin, and and to take her virginity. I mean, that, to me, was a really powerful bit of psychodrama and really shocking manipulation on Mick's part for such a young person.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's quite horrifying in a way, and it's just using women as chattels. And um, But that's what happens. You know, um, there's something very unhealthy about the Stones. Well, you know, I didn't like being around the Stones, around Mick's people. I felt there was something very unhealthy about his attitude to young women you know the best the most flattering depiction is that it's vampiric but um who knows how we're going to get to the bottom of you know what's happened with um, mick and his and his various women and uh, you know it, it, there's a real nastiness about that story and yes sex was used as a as a form of dominance. And I, I found it shocking the first time I sat down with Pat Andrews, she talked about that and it's something that's dominated her entire life. You know, it really has, um, spoiled her life, you know, and I really, really felt for her, you know, she finds it very hard to move on from all those nasty little claims that were made back in 1963, or it might've been early. It was very early anyway, but, um, yeah, it's those things are very brutal and and very nasty, and it did go on. And I suppose the only good part of it is that it kind of somehow fed into the music and and gave it an edge and a, a kind of dark magic it wouldn't have had otherwise. But yeah, it's 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 beyond nasty.
2: And so uh, to wrap it up, like, what would what if you could put your Storytelling about Brian Jones' life into one sentence for fans. What, what would you want people to take away from your work on Brian and Brian's work as a musician?
1: I think it's coming back to what we said at the beginning, that Brian was the first to, to kind of spot this sound, this dark dense, dangerous R&B sound, which you can hear in the slide guitar of Elmore James, or you can hear it in that spiky guitar of Hubert Sumlin, or in the sort of haunted voice of Robert Johnson. And this was kind of incredibly niche art music for a few kind of um, people into really esoteric sounds. And he he unleashed that. He took the cork out He unleashed this cornucopia of sounds that are all around us now. So I think there's something about the tonality of the Western world today and the sounds we hear. And Brian was the first one who uncorked it all and made it happen. And, you know, it's bigger than the Stones alone. The Stones kind of powered a lot of British R&B and then a lot of American garage rock, but it goes beyond that. Brian just, you know, he unleashed the sound of Pan on on the world. And we can still hear it today.
2: Well, awesome. And that was Paul Trinka, author of Brian Jones. It's called the making of the rolling stones in the U S and it's sympathy for the devil in the UK, as well as the author of David Bowie, Starman, Iggy open up and bleed and portrait of the blues. And hopefully we can have you back on the show to talk more in depth about some of those other books sometime.
1: Absolutely. Well, thanks, Nate. You asked some really interesting questions. I enjoyed that a lot and it is, uh, It's a great story. And what can I say? I was lucky, you know, it's good. The stories are out there and I felt lucky to kind of journey around this planet and try and uh, depict it as in all of its glory and messiness. So thanks a lot.
2: Well, thank you. And thanks for documenting it.
1: Take care. Thanks again. You too. Thanks, Bob.
2: Thanks for listening. Next week, join Paul Trinka and I again for a discussion of his biography of Iggy Pop. Be sure and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com to access the YouTube playlists and hear the music we're talking about. Paul is Iggy open up and bleed is available from three rivers press wherever
0: fine books are sold it's nfl draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football